and welcome to McLean's Pop Culture Podcast, Thrill, for the week of February 27th. On this week's show, Grouse About Cards, the third season of the Kevin Spacey Netflix series about a southern talking sneak in Washington, D.C., will be released this weekend, so that's a perfect time to talk about binge-watching, the new rules about spoilers, and how it's changing the way we consume media. Going to spin class, we put our twist on the conversation about TV spin-offs and all the advantages and disadvantages they have. And down goes Brown. Canada was so excited when our border officials rejected R&B star and general jerk Chris Brown. Should we really be so excited? I'm Adrian Lee, and I'm a digital editor who writes about arts and music. And I'm here with... I'm Emma Title, and I'm a columnist. And over to my right... I'm Julia De Laurentiis Johnson, and I'm the editorial assistant. So it's finally happening for us. The Thrill is now available for download on iTunes as well as Stitcher. And for our Android listeners on the app Beyond Pod, look us up under The Thrill or under McLean's, and we'd love it if you subscribe to us to take us on the go. We'll have a new episode waiting for you every Friday evening, hopefully right on time for your commute home. So thanks again for uh, your support so far, and let's get going with our first segment about TV spin-offs. The Noble Spin-Off. Successful franchises have been trying to parlay their success in new ways for a long time. Uh, in fact, get this, I have to share this with you guys. What may have been the first ever spin-off came in 1941, when the supporting character Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve from the old-time radio comedy show Fibber McGee and Molly became the star of his own program, The Great Gildersleeve. I am pretty glad that I got to say the name Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve today. Um, But these days, they're getting fewer and farther between. In early February, AMC debuted the series Better Call Saul, which serves as the prequel for the now-finished prestige show Breaking Bad. Much of the action takes place seven years before Breaking Bad's events, and it goes into the character of the greasy lawyer Saul Goodman, played by Bob Odenkirk, back when he was mysteriously then called Jimmy McGill. So, Julia, what did you think of the show? So I should first admit that I have never seen Breaking Bad, or rather that I bailed two-thirds into season one. And I know that, uh, as I've been told anyway, that you don't have to have seen Breaking Bad to like the show, but I didn't, I mean, it didn't really grab me, but that's probably by virtue of the fact that I don't really like court and crime dramas. And I think I probably just could have, I would have been more invested if I had known the backstory, the Breaking Bad backstory before I started this show. But I will say that, I mean, Bob Odenkirk is extremely watchable. He has very good comedic cred and he kind of... um, uses that, even though this is a, a more of a drama. He was one half of the comedy duo with David Cross on uh, Mr. Show, and mm-hmm. he used to be an SNL writer. He actually created the um, the Matt Foley motivational speaker character that Chris Farley, like the guy who lives down by the river, that was his character. You're using your paper not for writing, but for rolling doobies. You're going to be doing a lot of doobie rolling when you're living in a van down by the river. And you can see it like he's very he's very watchable in that way because um, he's he's funny like the character is a funny sad clown funny mm-hmm. and and that part I really liked. What do you think, Emma? I also were clearly we're not we're not equipped to do this show because I also was not a Breaking Bad fan and I I didn't I I sort of abandoned it as well because I found everyone in the show was just ugly and mean and horrible and maybe I should have kept going and I don't know I, I would have liked it more but. What I notice with this show is that it runs the risk, I think, of whenever you take a character who is a secondary character, sort of anybody who's really eccentric, even like Cosmo Kramer or something, and you create a show around that type of character, you run the risk of sort of 
exhausting everybody because when you when you get that character in smaller doses on on his or her original series it's sort of like a welcome sight you're like oh that person again but when you have the the entire show devoted to that person you might sort of tire of them like the best example of that is I don't know if you guys ever watched the Chris Lilly series, Summer Heights High. Yes, great show. It, it's Chris Lilly is an Australian comedian, and he plays three different characters at a, an elementary school. And one of them is sort of narcissistic gay drama teacher. Another one is a kid with ADD. And, and the other one is this egomaniacal private school girl named Jamey. Yeah, and she's like a mean girl. A mean girl, yeah. And she's she's a great character and she's horrible, very cruel, very funny. And you love her on the show, but they created a spin-off, I think last year or the year before called Jamey Private School Girl. And when you ha- take Jamey out of, you know, this el- when you have put her in her own element and it's just her, she know she sort of ceases to be as funny because yeah. it's just all cruelty and all right. eccentricity all the time, and that's how I sort of maybe feel about this show too, or will come to feel. <laughs> I don't know, what do you think, Adrian? Well, I, I you know, I, I'm in the weird minority here, I guess, insofar that I did watch Breaking Bad from start to finish. I think I agree with the fact that it is generally considered one of the best shows. Uh, yeah, I guess the side of the millennium. Uh, it, you know this great show with cliffhangers and yes ugly characters but also anti-heroes and and you know the 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 emotion of moral grays and that kind of thing but i think better call Saul is interesting because it really expresses to me all of the advantages and the disadvantages um of spin-offs because there there are dangers to it and there are benefits so for instance you guys you had not seen breaking bad and it, i can understand that it would actually be tricky to get into the show because the first scene does actually begin uh with with Saul Goodman after the events of Breaking Bad, uh, where he is in the you know witness protection program and he is now you know a, a Cinnabon manager, and that must be I can understand that being difficult for people. Sorry, did you say a Cinnabon manager? Yes, that's what he said. Okay. Where he is a Cinnabon manager, and it's a problem because you guys don't have emotional connection to him. Um, for us, people who are watching Breaking Bad, we know what's happening pretty much from the get go. Uh, we totally sympathize with him, and there is a sort of ease with which we already sort of are hooked to the show and to the character. So it's easier for people who've watched Breaking Bad to get into the show. On the flip side of that, though because Breaking Bad was so great, um, I myself was leery of, of Better Call Saul. I mean, it has massive shoes to fill, and that's that's the flip side of, of this whole uh, spinoff thing, is that if the show is so big and the spinoff show sort of needs to do something amazing for it to follow up adequately, um, the show so far I don't think has done that, but I also think that it's managing to do its own thing, which is this valuable thing that spinoffs need to do. It needs to find its own voice, and I think four episodes in, Better Call Saul has started to do that with its own sort of wit, and, and indeed the, the sort of Mr. Show quality, the sad clown quality of Bob Odenkirk, I think, is really shining through. And and so far, I'm 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 in on uh, on Better Call Saul. Yeah, um, I think in terms of that like emotional connection that you have with characters that you described, which is something that Em and I won't have, having not seen Breaking Bad, is uh, important. But it's also fickle; like it can it can grow or it can be extinguished really quickly. And and to Emma's point about the delicate ecosystem of taking a character out of its natural habitat and placing it elsewhere to see how it works. Another recent example of how that didn't work very well was with the show Joey, with Joey mm. from Friends, where they gave him his own show. And it's about Matt LeBlanc's character trying to make it as an actor in L.A. And he, Joey was the most, and always was, the most broadly cartoonish of the original 
Six and Friends. And when you make him the center of the show, as this show did, it seems inevitable that a show built around this likable, womanizing, perpetually hungry dim bulb um, wouldn't really make it. And it didn't last past two seasons because everybody else around him has to be the foil Mm -hmm. and the balance. Yeah, the balance is off. And with a lot of those characters, you you look to them they're for either for comic relief or for some kind of relief right and when they're That's right. when they're when the foil the, is thrust to the front mm-hmm. especially in this case and probably in Jimmy private school girl not strong enough to carry the whole the whole show mm-hmm. but i i mean spin-offs in general i've always been they've always uh, appeared to me as being kind of like a greedy thing sort of like a dupe to mm-hmm. the audience like they're trying to garner ratings by tricking fans of the original show to divert their attention to this diluted and, I mean, often unsatisfying parallel universe. It also kind of strikes me as a very 70s and 80s thing. I, like, I have visions of Joni Loves Chachi and the facts of life dancing in my mm-hmm. head. So, um, you know, but spinoffs, like, does the party have to, re- to end or is it best to leave with a dignified goodbye? There's, like, there's a really good, on the other side of Joey and Jimmy, Private School Girl, the, probably the most successful spinoff of all time is um, Frasier. So good. So good. I didn't even know that was a spinoff wow. until you guys See? told me. See? Exactly. Great, great. Because the very best of spinoffs work when the, the character that bridges the two shows is developed in such a way that it doesn't make you miss the incarnation of the character as they were in the original series. And Frasier is like a perfect example of that. It was born out of Cheers, a show from the 80s. Um, Frasier Crane, Kelsey Grammer plays the pompous and lovable uh, psychiatrist. Honestly, Frasier, you must be the last psychiatrist on earth who hasn't abandoned Sigmund Freud's theories. What are you saying? Merely that his theories are outdated, sexist superstitions unsupported by a shred of clinical evidence. You're drunk. My wife is completely smashed, blotto. Sam, no more boilermakers for Dr. Stern and Crane. And it's, but in that, in that show, it mainly deals with um, his stake in his romantic relationships. But in Frasier, which happened after Cheers was over, it's his relationship with his brother, Niles, played by the great David Hyde Pierce, and the various schemes to stay afloat among Seattle's cultural elite that was the real jewel of the show. And also, like he was surrounded by incredible talent. Not only was David Hyde Pierce... Um, nominated for an Emmy for every one of the 11 seasons of that show. But they had this writer. His name was Joe Keenan. He was a novelist, and he won the Thurber Prize for American Humor. And, I mean, the show, and you can see it in the show, in the writing, when it's at its very best, it's like a like a droll, Noel, Noel Coward play, Comedy of Errors. And that is like Chichingo. They really did it with Frasier. I also want to bring it to the point that there are kinds of spinoffs where it's not just importing a character. Um, you know, the spinoffs we've talked about so far, they're literally taking characters from one show and, and, and putting into another one. So Frasier, uh, Joey. But uh, something that, that people, I think, forget about is that you can also import the tone of shows, and those still count as spinoffs. So the recently ended show Parks and Recreation, people often forget, actually was a spinoff of The Office initially. Um, and you'll see that in the first, if you watch the first season of Parks and Recreation, you'll see the the sort of slow tone, the like you know the moments of bureaucracy, the shot, the long shots of like offices that the office was sort of known for in between. It's like kind of making fun of its excitable boss, which is really what the first season of the show was about. Uh, that was when Amy Poehler as Leslie Nope was this like enthusiastic person, but all her staffers kind of hated her. Um, they completely rebooted that in, in the second season, and uh, the show did end this week. Uh, and everyone rem- will remember the show as a show ultimately being about hugs and love, uh, which is a real departure from what I think The Office really was, which was a workplace comedy where everyone kind of to- learned to tolerate each other. Um, and I think that there is a-, a way to spin off uh, that way. That's not necessarily just importing a character, but also importing a feeling. 
Well, you can read what our TV critic Jamie Weinman had to say about spin-offs in his television in 2015 outlook on mcclaims.ca, and Better Call Saul airs on AMC on Monday nights. House of Cards, the Netflix original series that stars Kevin Spacey as a suave and duplicitous politician, is back February 27th, which means millions of people will be spending their weekends binge-watching the series, getting up from their sofas only when nature calls. I'm not a huge fan of the show, but I am a fan of binge-watching, even if it means I don't shower for days on end. And I'm not alone. Thanks to Netflix, Show Me, and the internet in general, binge-watching has come to define the modern TV-watching experience. But at what cost? Are we missing out on the serial television watching experience of generations past? Emma, what do you think? I think that binge watching is bittersweet. I am so excited for House of Cards to come back, even though I don't think it's the best show. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm excited for that high that you get from binge watching and an excuse that you have to do nothing else. You know, it really is like a kind of addiction you feel. You have to watch the show and you put off your other plans. As you said, you don't shower. You only get up to go to the bathroom. You know, but I, I think that it puts an enormous pressure on people, especially because binge watching is so ubiquitous that you know when you go back to work on Monday, everybody's going to be talking about it. And I had the same experience. It's, it's not necessarily even when it comes to TV, like when the last Harry Potter book came out, I was a camp counselor at a at a summer day camp and I read the entire last novel in one night because I knew that the next day all of my campers were going to ruin it for me. And so that's how I feel with House of Cards or any show that I binge watch is that I just I have to power through and go to the end. What do you guys think? Julia? Were you concerned they were going to root for you though, just because they were children and they don't know like social cues of like, oh, never mind. I'm sorry. I won't. Uh... Yeah, they don't care. about. So that's spoilers. more of like them just being kids. Don't you think? Well, I think that you, when it's with an adult community, you run the risk of hearing something by accident. Oh, okay. But kids, they knew that I liked it, and they had told me on the Friday before the weekend, like, we're going to ruin it for you. Oh, because they so, taunted you with it. <laughs> yeah, Good. they, they right. fully taunted me. Kids can be so me, cruel. But... Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I don't really mind the spoiler part because it's possible to avoid oh, to a point. There's mm -hmm. a deadline when people – because then even sometimes we do – when we talk about things on on the the podcast, we go, okay, well, it's been too long, so we're just going to spoil it for you now. So I suppose there's that. But I think what is more interesting to me about binge watching is the social pressure part of it. And there's like this immense cultural pressure to remain relevant by just being like up on everything. And, and that's what binge watching kind of um, signifies for me. And, and the, the internet, like it removes that, that barrier of access. Like, for example, you used to not you used to not be able to uh, like say read every major newspaper paper a day unless you like went out to buy those papers. And now it's just right in front of your face every day. You could read the Washington Post and the Boston Globe and every newspaper that exists. You can read them. And the there's an implication that if you're not up on it, you're kind of too lazy, or it's your own fault that you've fallen behind. I don't know about that. Nobody's so. gonna get. Nobody's gonna be upset I just if mean you don't watch House of Cards. I just I think of of binge watching and being up on stuff as like our generation's version of like keeping up with the Joneses, and uh, especially for people who don't live in like the economic times as lucrative as our previous generation, where like our parents or grandparents' generation is more about like having the right kind of car, going on the right vacation. But since like a lot fewer of us can um, afford that kind of thing, 
Uh, but we can a lot more easily afford an internet connection, which is the source of endless access to read and watch things. So we kind of shame each other. Like I was talking about how I haven't ever seen Breaking Bad. And sometimes when I re- reveal that to people, they go, you haven't seen Breaking Bad? Yeah. Like, and I'm like, oh. Like you're out of touch. I am. Yeah. And like, what have you been doing with your life? Mm-hmm. And then I like, I feel like a, a rush of shame a little because everybody. You haven't a- been sitting in your underwear. <laughs> yeah. Not showering and only watching. getting up to pee. Okay. Yeah. Guys, hurtful. Okay. Well, <laughs> um, we're well just that's, calling it like it is. But that's. But that's the flip side kind of of the democratization of, of I guess, pop culture and art, which is kind of the world we live in right now where we're, we have, like, all-you-can-eat buffets of things. Uh, because it's all there, there is now this expectation, and I think this is what you're saying, where you have to eat it all at, at once and you should sit at your table forever and, and literally put all the lobster and shrimp in your yeah, mouth. But, I mean, like, where is the point where people go, like, hey, guess what, everybody? This is crazy. No, no need. It reminds me of that Portlandia sketch. Do you know the one I mean? Where the they're Battle like Star Galactica. One? No, no. Although good one. No, but I'm. It's more. I'm referencing the one of. But there's two people are conversing in the cafe, and they're like, "Hey, did you read the article in X?" And like, "Yes." Did you read the article in Y? And it like it escalates into this absurd levels of one-upmanship. Did you read that thing in Pace? It was about the National. Oh, I saw that. Did you see that thing in Dwell about all the mid-century houses? Yeah. Did you read the New York Times? Yes. The New York Observer. Yes. Washington Post. Yes. Wall Street Journal. Of course I read it. Did you read that steampunk article in Boing Boing? I did not like the end of it. Did you read that skywriting over the? River? Yes. Did you read that fortune cookie? Yes. From last night? Yes. Did you read it? Yes. There were two. Yes. Did you read that thing that guy wrote in the sand on the beach? Yeah. Did you read the Portland Mercury? Yeah. Did you read the Willamette Week? Yeah. Did you read the Seattle Stranger? Beginning to end. And each are like desperate to appear more on top of what's going on than the last person. And it's like, yeah, man, that's it. Right. I think we also lose something. You know, when we were kids before the internet, you would watch, or even when, when the internet existed, but before Netflix, I would watch the OC every Thursday night and have like an OC party with yes. my friends. And even now, but you my, could only watch that one episode. Yeah, and that made it exciting. And you know, my an event. My family also has like a Game of Thrones yes, watching nice. party. And from doing that, it sort of made me think like, wow, this is a totally different TV watching experience. I have this one episode to look forward to, and I don't have to stay in my pajamas. And <laughs> and then it's know. a social event, yeah. As opposed to just like, who's the last man standing who can sit here for five episodes? So let me so let me say two things. One, which is a kind of defense of binge watching, and one is kind of a. I don't know, offense of binge watching. So, I mean, like, what we're, what we're talking about here is is the idea of literally, like, sitting in your underwear and watching, uh, what, like, four or five hours. There's actually a, de- a definition that people have created, and I believe it's watching uh, two or more episodes in a row That's a of binge? TV. That's, like, officially a binge now. Oh, maybe it's two, maybe it's three. Um, but it's like, was... how many drinks do you have a week? Yeah, that's right, <laughs> which is, you know. The one another, you don't want to admit. Another question. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I think uh, there, there has been there have been studies that that have come out that talk about how you know the deleterious uh, problems with binge watching, not necessarily just the fact that you're sitting there, but because those habits actually create other bad habits, including, and we all know this, that when we're binge watching, we're going to be eating food. We're going to be, like many of us also drink at the same time. Uh, you know, it doesn't become this social gathering, but it becomes things that ultimately kind of lead to depression. So there so there are objectively kind of questions that we should be asking about binge watching. I think it's strange that we're not. I mean, when we're talking about uh, someone who's literally sitting in front of a TV and not showering for a while, there was a time where people were like, well, that's a problem. And now we're like, oh, what, that's a, normal. what a normal life Did House you of Cards have. Come yeah, out? <laughs> what a great, let's all do this separately in our rooms. Um, but in binge watching defense, I think uh, that our digital age has provided this mechanism to consume media, and I think that it in itself is not a bad thing. It is a new way of of, of interacting with TV shows. Um, I myself have been much more a TV guy than a movie guy. Uh, 
even though ultimately the the commitment to uh, a TV show is is far more immense than an hour and a half or a two hour movie. I really like that uh, a TV show because it can be segmented out. I can control the amount of I, I can watch it. Um, I think that binge watching has its benefits. There are shows to me that actually benefit from that way of watching it. You know, we talked about Breaking Bad. I've spoken to a lot of my friends who talk about how uh, you know the first season, the first half season, didn't quite get them. Um, Breaking Bad then arrived on Netflix, and that really was a, a liftoff point for a lot of people. They started really getting behind Breaking Bad because it was available. Uh, all the cliffhangers could be immediately you know, tied up in the next minute. Um, there's another show that I really like called Happy Endings, which is this really delightful sitcom that is kind of a nothing sitcom, but it's on Netflix, and I will often just put it on because it's a really comforting show, uh, a really funny show that I can just throw on and not really think and just laugh. I think there there are benefits to the ability to binge watch. I think it's interesting that we have not set up our own rules for them, though. Do you think yeah. we should... It's kind of like vi- digital or visual chapters in a book. Like you don't have to put your book down if you want to see what happens in the next chapter. You can just press play, and that is new. And that that is what I've never heard of that. No, I mean if you if you see all of, if all of the episodes exist as as one season and they come out as one, you don't have to wait a week until episode two, aka chapter two. You can just continue on, and that's that's good for um, you know instant gratification. But as you you know, everyone knows there is pros and cons to instant gratification. What do you think, Emma? I think it also totally changes how we view these shows. Like, I'm not convinced that I would like House of Cards if I watched one episode a week. And had to Mm -hmm. go a whole week without. I think it would be a boring show. I thought the second season especially wasn't very good. There Mm -hmm. were some subplots that I just didn't care about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when you can watch it all at once, and especially when Netflix says new episodes starting five, four, three, two, one, strap in, here we go, blast off. It's like a weird shame spiral of of just hitting play, and here we are. It's the next thing, and now I'm still in my underwear. Chris Brown, arguably one of the most detested names in popular culture, was denied entry into Canada this week, where he was scheduled to perform two concerts in Toronto and Montreal. Brown was charged with assaulting his ex-girlfriend Rihanna in 2009, a crime still fresh in the public's mind. In fact, Canadians seem to relish our immigration officials' decision to keep Brown out of the country. On Twitter, many people who usually have nothing nice to say about the government were expressing their deepest gratitude. It isn't every day you hear people openly thanking the government with such enthusiasm. So what should we make about this gleeful hatred of Chris Brown, Adrian? I guess what it says to me is that our hatred of Chris Brown is so great that it's managed to unite an entire country. <laughs> I think it's amazing, and I think we should all th- be grateful to Chris, Chris Brown. Chris Brown no. is a nonpartisan issue. <laughs> That's right. I think, we, I think it's time to bring it up or in the House of Commons uh, and make it Bill C. Brown. <laughs> Um, but, uh, no, seriously, I mean, Chris Brown, I think we can all, let's just for the record here, agree that Chris Brown is indeed a pop culture villain. Uh, this is a guy who indeed struck Rihanna, uh, his then girlfriend, um, uh, never, I mean, sort of went through this weird apology thing and, and sort of, but kept doing like really stupid things. I think one of the more recent things was that he referred to Ebola as population control. Uh, recently at the Grammys, he, um, was there as Rihanna was also in the room as Barack Obama uh, delivered a PSA about uh, anti-violence, which I think everyone similarly uh, took great relish in his squirming. Um, 
But I think as far as, as this goes, I think what's weird about the way that we're celebrating um, is just the fact that one, we're celebrating government border officials, a, a group of humans that we don't generally appreciate. And not saying that that's bad, but, but the flip side of that is that they often don't let a lot of people in uh, into our borders. You know, being a Canadian rap fan is this weird thing uh, where we don't actually know a lot of the time whether or not rappers will actually get, cross, get across the border. And sometimes the charges are nothing charges, you know, felonies, uh, you know, things that don't necessarily, shouldn't necessarily affect a rapper's ability to do his work, which is tour internationally and, and, and you know, pr promote his own music. Um, Julia, what do you think about this whole thing? Yeah, I, I think that um, to your point about sometimes the government officials don't let in uh, artists with track records be and one of them being rappers. Um, you know, I'm a big hip hop fan, too. As you know, Adrian and I talk about it sometimes, <laughs> time to time. And I agree, but I don't think a lot of people like or enough people like these obscure rappers that we do and or so care if they're shut out. Mm. So everybody with Chris Brown, with this, this Chris Brown um, scenario, everybody's like, oh, the system worked. Thank you, Canada. Let's leave this terrible person outside of Canada. He beat up Rihanna, who we all is, you know, more famous than him, more talented than he is and more publicly beloved. So we're all very happy to uh, not allow him entry into our country. But what if it was a public... Uh, like a, a, an entertainer that the public was really fond of. Like what if it was Prince that they didn't let in or Taylor Swift or like Guns N' Roses at the height of their fame or something? Would the public be happy then? Probably not. Jay-Z stabbed a guy and was charged for it in mm -hmm. 2001. And he got through our border last summer during the On the Run tour with Beyonce and the Legends of the Summer tour in 2013 with Justin Timberlake and his Blueprint 3 tour in 2009. So Jay-Z Jay got in because we love him. And nobody was like, keep the stabber out of the country. I think there's two things going on there. One is that the idea of a guy stabbing another guy is not as heinous in our minds as the idea of a man beating up his girlfriend. But it is a felony. He was charged for of it. Of course. So it's public. That's the public's right. being a jury. Yeah, and yeah, that's, and that's but what's. Oh. I think. Sorry, I think the bigger issue here is that Chris Brown is not remorseful, and so it's very almost cathartic to relish in Chris Brown's, you know, denial from the country because he himself has never really said sorry. He's never really apologized. He's always sort of given a half apology, and it's really hard to forgive somebody who forgives himself so easily when he's done something so horrible. Uh, yes, I think that's a very good point. I actually spoke to an immigration lawyer about this, and um, he told me that there is, of course, a significant degree of discretion in deciding who gets into the country. And some of the things that immigration officials consider are the seriousness of offense, amount of offenses, behavior since the offense, which is about showing and, and demonstrating remorse, and positive community involvement. And maybe Jay-Z falls into that category, and maybe Chris Brown doesn't. But I think that's a, a good point. But this is what's so tricky about this and why why I'm kind of uncomfortable with our cheering about it is that it becomes so moral and subjective. I don't I don't know if I want, you know, government officials deciding basically what is OK and what is not OK creatively or remorse even wise, uh, what is OK to get past our borders. You know, um, so in, in 2000, uh, Jim Flaherty, who was our f uh, former finance minister, uh, now deceased, also was Ontario's uh, attorney general at the time when he tried to make Eminem not get in. And this 
was not over the fact that he at the time was kind of dealing with a gun charge. He very explicitly said that it was about uh, the lyrical content. And this is the kind of thing that we get into is that, I mean, that is an offshoot of the exact same thing that makes us cheer when Chris Brown's not in is that we're also in a way that's that allows politicians to say, well, OK, let me let me interfere and say that. You yeah, know, that's different. That's censorship. I mean, that's not allowed. But it's but it's but pretty this close. Is a, we're talking about felonies. Right. And I think that that's that's the difference. Right. So I'm not saying that this is censorship per se. I'm simply saying that, uh, you know, we're we're OK when the government falls uh, in our favor. Basically, yes. when we all kind of agree that Chris Brown's a jerk, I think. Yeah, but could you imagine they didn't let Jay-Z in? Not cool. Right. But I'm simply I'm saying that you that just there's... stabbed a guy. Oh, is that it? OK. <laughs> I'm just saying that there's a flip side. There's a there's a there's a quiet double standard. And I think that we should celebrate that Chris Brown's not in our country. There's no question that it's it's kind of great that our country stood up. Uh, for something that I think does reflect a Canadian ideal, which is we don't believe in that kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, we also should realize that, you know, there should be a, at least a little bit of outrage that, that you know, the flip side, that it doesn't always come down this way. He's not even that good a rapper. No, no, no. You can check out what Adrian has to say about Chris Brown and immigration on mcleans.ca. Well, that's it for this week. Find new episodes every Friday at mcleans.ca, on iTunes, on Stitcher, and Beyond Pod. Drop us a comment on the site to tell us what we should talk about, or tell us how we're doing. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Rose Title, follow Julie on Twitter at Julia Del Dre, and me at Adrian K. Lee. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.